When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. episode of the birdshot podcast is presented by onyx hunt final rise and upland gun company on this episode of the show we talked to upland bird hunter pete hannibit on gun fitting prairie bird hunting and more thanks for tuning in to episode number 186 Welcome to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Thank you for tuning in, everybody. We've got a really fun conversation with Pete Hanovit coming up for you in just a moment. First, as always, thank you to Patreon supporters of the Birdshot Podcast. Your contributions to the show are so greatly appreciated, and you're a big part of the show's success and commitment to bringing you and all the listeners some excellent upland hunting conversation. Our July Patreon giveaway winner, Glenn from Florida, has chosen the Pathfinder 2, the Pathfinder 2 GPS tracking and training collar from Dogtra. Thank you to Dogtra for donating that to our Patreon patrons. And that means still available for the August giveaway and eventually the September giveaway, a complete vest system from Final Rise, the Summit Legacy or Sidekick system, whichever you prefer. That's a vest from Final Rise or a brand new pair of brush pants from First Light, the Sawbuck brush pants. So at the end of the month, we will draw another winner of all eligible Patreon patrons, and they will have their choice of the Final Rise vest or the Sawbuck brush pants from First Light, or I should say an Onyx Elite subscription card. Kind of always got those available. So if anybody prefers that, that would be an option as well. And just earlier today, I put out the second bonus episode between Nick Adair of the Gundog It Yourself podcast and myself a bonus video podcast published via private YouTube link on the Patreon-only feed. So again, Patreon patrons out there can check that out on the Birdshot podcast Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash birdshot. You could sign up there, 
Starting at five bucks a month, we'll get you some Bird Chat Podcast canned coolers and stickers. And as you'll hear in today's episode from our guest Pete, a clever idea of using a can cooler combined with some horse leg wrap as a way to add some height to the comb of your shotgun stock when we get into gun fitting and all that fun stuff. Perhaps a use for your Bird Chat Podcast canned coolers. And I will say, as I said on the episode, I would not be offended if you used the Bird Chat Podcast can cooler for that purpose. I'm going to send you two of them anyways, so you got to spare. And you would be eligible for Patreon-exclusive discounts, like the ones we have for Gumleaf USA and Upland Institute. You can ask me for those via Patreon. You'll get those bonus episodes when we put those up. And of course, you are eligible for all Patreon monthly giveaways. So thanks to Patreon patrons. Thanks for considering that. Moving on. Please subscribe, follow, rate, review, share the Birdshot podcast. That's a quick, simple thing you could do while you're listening. If the podcast player allows you to leave a rating or a review or a comment or subscribe and follow, any of those little things go a long way in helping out the Birdshot podcast. So take a moment to do that. I appreciate it. And that's about it for me this week. Had a busy week last week. Got at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Caught up with a bunch of listeners and up and gun company customers. Good time out there as always. Hanging out with Del Whitman. Always appreciate an opportunity to pick his brain on shotguns, shooting, bird hunting. So that was fun. And that is where I caught up with our guest today, Pete Hannibit. Pete has been a listener of the show. He and I have kept in touch over the past couple of years after Pete reached out one day and just kind of became a connection of mine, like many of you out there listening through the podcast, which I really appreciate it. And it's one of, if not the most favorite part of doing this podcast is getting to meet and interact with a whole bunch of people that I probably otherwise would not. And anyways, Pete came over from North Dakota to do a gun fitting with Del Whitman. Had a great time. I caught up with him for a little while after his fitting. It was the first time he and I had met in person, and we just had a great time chatting there at Pine Ridge. And I thought it would be kind of cool to get him on the podcast shortly thereafter to get his thoughts on the gun fitting process, what he was expecting going into it, what he got out of it, and really just get some feedback from him kind of quickly after he went through the gun fitting. So we did that. And of course, I knew he was out in North Dakota. So I figured we could do a little prairie grouse report and talk about the season ahead. And we got into all kinds of stuff. Pete had a lot of stories. He's got some radio experience under his belt, which is evident in the conversation today. And just all around a great guy to have a conversation with. I really enjoyed it. And I'm pretty sure you will too. So with that said, let's get into it and welcome into the conversation and onto the Birdshot podcast, Pete Hannibal. Oh, how do you pronounce your last name, Pete? Well, it depends on what part of the family you're from, but most people call us Hannibal. Some people call us Hannibal. Either way, <laughs> and I'm happy with either, uh, honestly. And I hear either commonly. Yeah, within the family, I have cousins that are Hannibal's and cousins that are Hannibal's. So either one is fine with me. Well, my natural inclination was to say, in my mind, was to say Pete Hannibal. So uh-huh. with that, I'm going to welcome Pete Hannibal to the Birdshot <laughs> Podcast. Thanks for joining me today, Pete. My pleasure. We are talking to you all the way from, not too far from here, but the great state of North Dakota. Yes, I live in a little town called New Salem, which is just west of Bismarck. If any of you have ever gone across on 94, it's the town with the great big Holstein cow out by the interstate. So I was thinking about that for the listeners, for their for their knowledge. I saw you, f- first time got to meet you in person at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp last week. You were out for a gun fitting with Del Whitman, which we will probably get to, but you and I had the chance to chat for a little bit before I got too busy and you had to hit the road. But I was thinking about that. Is there, there is also, uh, I think on the Eastern part of the state, there's also a big bison somewhere, isn't there? 
Yes, at Jamestown they have the big buffalo. Okay, bison. buffalo. You're okay. right. You're okay. right. Bison, and then uh, and then and they have a little buffalo herd there for uh, people to come see at their at their historic museum, which is kind of neat. Yeah. And then uh, there's also a town in North Dakota that has the great big uh, sandhill crane. Oh, really? And so it's funny that North Dakota seems to have this love affair with uh, interesting things for tourists to have their pictures taken next to yeah. and my town happens to be the heart of what was the old dairy country within north dakota where there are a lot of dairy farms around and the town fathers uh years and years ago decided that that would be a good thing to put up and it is an amazing thing to sit there and watch all the license plates that go up and see salem <laughs> sioux the town mascot salem sioux salem see the view from salem sioux oh yeah. see there you even got the tagline <laughs> yes that's funny. You know, that, then my mind was kind of starting to wander. And I mean, that, that is not a, it's not a strange concept. I mean, the, things like that, large, iconic things exist like that all over. I think maybe the, the Midwest tends to be a, tends to be a landing place for a lot of that stuff. I know we've got, I want to, Minnesota's got to have a big walleye somewhere, probably up by Lake of the Woods oh, yeah. or something. Yes. And, and you got Paul Bunyan there. Yeah. Well, yeah. well and Paul Bunyan, that was, I was going to get there. Yeah, and then Hayward, Wisconsin, they've got a big muskie. I'm pretty sure. So yeah, I've had my picture taken in the mouth of the big muskie. <laughs> I, so, think, yeah. I think I have too. They also have a, a crappie and a bluegill, I believe. That's the the freshwater fishing uh, uh, hall of fame is there, and that's yes. a neat thing for tourists to see. Yeah, uh, we think that we're better in North Dakota that we have our unique uh, animals versus a big ball of string in Iowa or wherever that might be. And the, I've been to the world's largest front porch swing, which is in uh, Fairbury, Nebraska. Uh, apparently I'm a good tourist cause I stop and see all these funny things. <laughs> yeah. You've got, you've got the, you've got, you could put your own map together of, yeah. uh, of large <laughs> iconic, uh, tourist stops. <laughs> that and breaded tenderloin sandwiches, where to get the best ones. That should be a book too, you know? Oh, where's so. the, where's the last best one you had? Uh, there's one outside of Indianapolis that's outstanding, uh, hand breaded. They take the loin and they pound it out and, and all that. And so it's, it's, uh, it's a good one as well. So, but you can find those in a lot of places versus the ones that are way bigger than the bun that don't have, uh, don't have as much flavor. The, the good ones are the ones that are hand breaded and they never have the same shape twice, you know, mm. that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, before we leave this topic, the Paul Bunyan, I was thinking about that as I was leading up to this conversation in my mind and was wondering, like, I'm a, I'm a little fuzzy on my, I mean, I know Paul Bunyan just growing up in Minnesota as, you know, this iconic figure and like, it, it definitely creates visions and stuff in my mind, but I, I guess it would be kind of curious for me to go back and maybe read a little blurb or some kind of history on him now that I'm a little bit older. But mm-hmm. what I'm wondering is like, should we as grouse hunters, should we be worshiping at the altar that is Paul Bunyan as, as one of the uh, early loggers or, or perhaps maybe he's representative of a time that uh, there wasn't a whole lot going into forest management. It was just a lot of cutting. It, it could be both. Uh, we yep. can certainly honor him for uh, his, his uh, historic uh, value as an iconic figure and a, and a mythical figure and all the things that, you know, logging and what that meant to the, right. the growth of America, certainly after the Civil War with that spur, and then after World War One, another one. And there are a lot of towns that, that owe their existence to the timber industry, mm. and they would put up Paul Bunyan. But when I think about the places that I grouse hunt that, that hold up uh, the the old loggers from days gone by and how mythical they are, and they all seem to have some kind of 
interesting Scandahoovian name like Lars Larson or something like that, you know, and, <laughs> and you, you need to honor all those guys because they are uh, before uh, the advent of the, the, the era where we think about conservationists and Gifford Pinchot and mm-hmm. Roosevelt and, and all those guys uh, and gals, there was uh, certainly an era where we uh, logged and never looked back and, and we've learned from that. And so they are our foundation in a lot of ways. And as grouse hunters, we should probably pay homage to them because uh, they at least remind Americans that are not in touch with the timber industry how important that was for the foundations of America. And when you think about all the houses in Chicago that were built mm. from timber in the Northwoods, wherever that was, or any place like that, uh, the, the, the L.A. houses that were built from somewhere, not Redwoods, but somewhere in the forests of the West Coast, you know, those things are iconic. And they're important, and I think it's an, always good to remind our next generation that the timber industry is important to America, uh, whether it's paper, pulp that we, we all love as grouse hunters, or whether it's the framing carpenter that needs that kind of stuff from someplace in Georgia where they're hunting quail now mm-hmm. on, the pine, on the pine forest or whatever. You know, There's a value in all of that, and so why not put up Paul Bunyan and, and not disparage him any more than we disparaged George Washington because we had a different culture back then. Right, right. Yeah, we don't. We you don't know what we don't know, and yeah, I think you. I think you probably nailed that one. And perhaps I'll do a little digging, and maybe we'll do a Paul Bunyan tribute episode at some point. <laughs> well, there you go, and and you could go there by Chippewa Falls by the brewery. There they have the Paul Bunyan there, or they have a, mm-hmm. a like a. a a lumberjack museum there and you can see the blue ox and Paul Bunyan. I have pictures of my boys where I hoisted them up on the blue ox when they were six and yeah. and 10 for that picture too. So, you know, they, uh, it, it does seem like I put those things on my list and go through them, but this was, this was before on X was available. So I couldn't mark them all, but you know, <laughs> I wonder, cool I wonder if, now. I wonder if on X has, has, uh, the Paul Bunyan monument pinned. <laughs> I think Ben needs to come up with some more, uh, some more waypoints that we can drop in for, you know, tourist traps, yes, you know, that kind of yeah. thing. Go to the concrete museum in, in, uh, Price County, Wisconsin too, you know, the concrete, uh, figure museum, which is entertaining. If any of you have been by that, it's, uh, I wouldn't necessarily call it artwork, but it's entertaining to look at. (laughs) You do bring up some great points though, again, about obviously the forestry industry that exists today would certainly have been founded on obviously the loggers of old and Duluth is a, was an old lumber baron town, as I understand. And I think there was a lot of, there was a lot of money from Chicago and, and folks coming up from Chicago to obviously harvest timber and, you know, build that city. So yeah, there is a lot of, a lot of history in this area and that is definitely lends itself to the grouse hunting that we have today. It's all, it's all one and the same really. Well, and, and for me, the history type stuff is important because I want to value our history and learn from our mistakes yeah. and, and make the next generation better. But I also, you know, hunt with kind of historic old guns. I, mm-hmm. I like my old shotguns that were made before World War II. And so I have a value in that. Other people collect fly rods or golf clubs or whatever it is uh, that are from a bygone era. And they enjoy using these things with our outdoor sports. And I think there's some value in that. There's some nostalgic uh, value to that. And, and I, appreciate anybody that plays with golf clubs that are blades and wooden sticks. And I appreciate anybody that that fishes with a fly rod that, you know, Hoagie Carmichael made because it was bamboo back in the day and all that kind of stuff. And so those are some interesting things. And I, I hope other people value those as much as I do. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. 
Well, Pete, let's let's get a little more background from you, and I'd love to hear about your beginnings in the outdoors and hunting going back to Indiana, because that's where you're originally from, right? Yeah, I grew up in, in Indiana. My dad was a county extension agent, if you know what that is, so he worked for Purdue, and uh, we're all Purdue Boilermakers in my family, mm-hmm. loyal Boilermakers. And so dad worked for Purdue as an extension agent. And, and because of that, they moved around to a couple of different counties uh, throughout his career, uh, starting in southern Indiana and moving to central Indiana. Primarily, I grew up uh, west of Indianapolis in Hendricks County, Danville. But dad had also been in Rockville, which is a couple of counties further west uh, when my brothers were, were little kids. And so uh, we moved around a little bit. Uh, my family roots are southern Indiana in Dubois County and Holland. So I, I grew up in the outdoors because my dad's hobby was coon hunting. Mm. And, uh, you know, you, you start off your love of dogs goes back to blue ticks and walkers and red bones and plots and all those things. <laughs> and, and, you know, because of that, I still would love to go, you know, hunting for something where we're following tracking dogs and hounds and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I, I moved away from that as I got through college and everything. And I still love dogs and I moved into bird dogs because I like them. And uh, I, I fell in love with double barrel shotguns. So it's funny that I can go from southern Indiana quail hunting guy uh, with the single shot 410, you know, and, and not having a dog at all for, for bird hunting, that is. Yeah. And, and following my dad uh, coon hunting all through my formative years and even doing that on my, on my own in high school and college a little bit for the fun of it. Uh, and then move into, you know, loving double barrels and, and dogs that point and that kind of thing. Dogs that don't always hold point, but you want them to. And so, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. It's been a journey for me uh, in moving from what I grew up with as a, as a, you know, junior high and high school age kid hunting and trapping. Yep. And, you know, I think all of us value the time that we spend with our parents, particularly if you had a father or an uncle or whoever, grandfather that, that took you hunting or fishing and showed you that experience and, and turned you on to that. Well, my dad was that for me, certainly, and, and my brothers as well. And, and yet, you know, uh, I, I went a different path with my hunting, but that was dad's dedication uh, hobby was, was coon hunting. And, and the time that I spent with him when I was a 10 or 12-year-old boy and the lessons I learned standing, listening to the dogs, you know, on track yeah. and treeing. And, and standing there with the carbide light back in the day. You I was know, going to say, I'm picturing uh, you out there in the dark with some sort of big canister light on your, on your, I yeah. think I'm like drawing up visions of like, um, where the red fern grows, like scenes of that yeah. movie. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, back in that era, uh, we started off with regular cell flashlights mm. and then all at once, oh my gosh, you learned how to have a wheat light, which was the light that the coal miners used a lot. Oh. And so you had it on your helmet and yep. everything. And that was, you know, the bee's knees back in the day. But right. my dad still still carried a, a shining light, which was on his helmet, but carried a shining light, but he we walked with carbide lights for walking around. And so, you know, here I am the little kid that wants to like light every foxtail head on t- on fire and cause problems for dad and all that kind of stuff. And I'd be yammering along and talking about something. And he'd all at once have to say, quiet, quiet. I hear the dog's tone and the dog's voice is changing. Yeah. He's starting to, he's starting to bark up a little bit. You know, he's tapping, he's not treeing yet, but he's tapping on the tree, you know, and, and following the dogs, you know, whether it was Rowdy, who was a, uh, a walker uh, of, of questionable origin. Or we had Queenie or Fanny, you know, uh, that were blue ticks. You know, we had we had a variety of dogs. I got to appreciate that, you know, 
every breed has value in a lot of ways. And dad would always say, you know, uh, you know, there's good ones in every breed. Mm. So don't get stuck on one, even though he was partial to blue ticks. His yeah. best dog was probably a walker. And he'd also teach me lessons like, you know, you, you may only have one really good dog in your life and value it, you know, while you do, yeah. you know, and, and, and enjoy that while you have it. And I've had a couple of good bird dogs and I'm proud that I've had two, what I would consider good bird dogs that my friends wanted to hunt with. You know, you don't have the dog where you get to the tee in the trail and your friends say, you and potlicker go that way and me and she are going to go that way <laughs> you know i've had i've had dogs where they've said would you bring your dog and hunt with us mm-hmm. that kind of thing and and that's that is it's an enjoyable thing when your dog is good enough that when the other dogs can't find the the dead woodcock that they say bring bring Otto over here and see if he can find this dead bird and then he does yeah you know and so that has a great value and it's a great value as a conservation tool to have a good dog so why not yeah, absolutely. What what do you remember? Do you remember anything about the training that your dad would do with the hound? I mean, was it basically take him out and run him on wild things? Like, I just want, you know, like, we obviously can get carried away with that with information overload in today's day and age. Sure. But just, like, give me an idea of what it was like back then or what you remember for it at le- from it, at least. Sure, sure. And, and dad would, you know, it's kind of funny how he would have a decent dog and he would always be bringing a puppy on. Mm. And the puppy learned from the older dogs, just a lot like our bird dogs do. And it wasn't a whole lot of manners things with my dad other than the dog healing and the dog coming when you call him. But there were some training things uh, with a a quote-unquote pet coon, uh, you know, and that kind Mm -hmm. of stuff where you'd you'd lay a little track with the pet coon, and and that was all fine, well, and good. But I I honestly think a lot of dad's uh, training was throw the young dog in with the old dog and and make sure that he learns the lessons along the way. If the dog has a nose, and we would have what we would call a cold-nosed dog or a hot-nosed dog, you know, one that would, would, would pick up a, a two-hour-old track oh, versus yeah. a, a ten-minute-old track, you know. And so, you know, a cold-nosed dog that maybe has a pup that's running with him and he's, you know, learning how to sort out the where the coons have been and where the track has gone and all that. And, and so, you know, we had a lot of that stuff. We had one dog that we kind of got as a – uh, nowadays you'd call it a rescue dog. An older gentleman passed on and his, his wife uh, said to my dad, you know, would you take old drummer? So, you know, he can continue to keep hunting. And sure enough, we kept old drummer for quite a while. And old drummer was not the dog that you would take puppies with because when old drummer got on the tree, he didn't want other dogs barking up his tree. <laughs> and so it's kind of a, a lesson learned that, you know, certain dogs are not very good social dogs with others. And, and mm-hmm. we see that with bird dogs sometimes. It's, yeah. I, I, I have seen a dog that, you know, it didn't matter how much you taught that dog to back. It was about their own, you know, personality and they didn't want to back. They'd want to ride in. And so manners within different dog breeds are kind of like that, you know, where you, you learn different things along the way. And, and I don't think dad's training was, uh, too intense. I mean, he had some books about it and he had some things that he learned, but a lot of the things dad learned about training were from other old guys that were coon hunters. And a lot of his friends were old World War II veterans that he had stuff in common with, you know, and he would coon hunt with a, a number of different guys, and they would cycle through a number of different dogs. And he had some training things for breaking them on trash, you know, whether they would run foxes or deer or anything like that. But for the most part, uh, those things have kind of gone by the wayside with our, our more modern training methods. Yeah. And uh, some of those things were kind of sketchy, but they worked, you know. Right. And uh, it that's where the concepts were formed and we've got different yeah. tools to address them today. Absolutely. Yeah. 
any run-ins with the Indiana rough grouse way back when? I know you mentioned quail. Strangely enough, um, when when I was I did a, a, a postgraduate program where uh, they encouraged us to take on a a um, community project type thing, whether it was with an organization or within your own church or within whatever. And the the rough grouse uh, group in Indianapolis had gone defunct after a number of years, and nobody they hadn't had banquets in a number of years. And mm. I took that on as the thing that I wanted to do. And so we basically jump-started the, uh, the rough grouse banquet in Indianapolis. Uh, this would have been 97, 98, something like that, uh, maybe 99. And, and uh, we kind of jump-started that, that uh, banquet in the area. And some of the, the guys who had been in before came back and everything, but it's, it's still going strong to the best of my knowledge. They still have a banquet. And so I was involved with rough grouse in Indiana. So that with the society and, and looking to build greater habitat. Yeah. In my real job, I'm a lobbyist. And so I've been a lobbyist for the Farm Bureau for a long time, North Dakota Farm Bureau now, Indiana Farm Bureau previously. Hmm. And so I had a lot of experience at the State House and with, you know, how you make public policy things work. And some of our public policy challenges in Indiana were that uh, as, the, as the furniture industry went away from southern Indiana, and moved to softwood furniture in Canada and wood from China and stuff like that. As the as the furniture industry kind of waned in Indiana, so did uh, successional habitat for rough grouse. Mm. And so uh, that was always a challenge, and we were always beating the drum to get that to happen. And through different administrations, whether they were R's or D's or whatever in the in the governor's office, those things were either hard to do or easy to do. And so it became a bit of a challenge in that we were losing habitat and, you know, we hear a lot of things about habitat loss and, and mm-hmm. who gets blamed for, for, for species decline. And uh, the rough grouse in Indiana basically went away because no, crea- no habitat was created. And a few people within the DNR uh, there did not have the, uh, they didn't have the testicular fortitude to take it on. And that's the <laughs> nicest way I can say it. Uh, and, and I hope that doesn't offend anybody, but that's the reality. Uh, they had some people there that would t- could talk in, in, in big, grandiose things, but they never put rubber to the road on creating habitat. And even when we would have a tornado go through and create habitat naturally by tearing up swaths of old-growth forest, uh, they would never go in and clean that up and, and make it uh, grouse habitat, even though it was in the heart of the old grouse country in southern Indiana. So southern Indiana was rough grouse country. That's where I got my love for rough grouse. And, and we would go to Kentucky to hunt rough grouse, southern Ohio, back when, in the days when the Mead Forest or the Mead Paper Company had lots of ground in southern Ohio. Those were all likely spots to find us chasing rough grouse yeah. in, in that part of, of the eastern uh, Midwest and, and north, north part of Kentucky, or east, actually it's eastern Kentucky over by Moorhead. So we had grouse hunting. Uh, but that has gone away, and unfortunately uh, the people who could have kept that from going away did not did not take the lead on that they they looked at other species and i know the game and fish dnr departments can can make more money off of selling turkey licenses and things like that than they do uh with with just the the common upland bird uh stuff but it's a shame that they let a species go away and worse than that is what it does for every other species that depends on that habitat too so your your warblers are gone your a lot of a lot of things have gone away, uh, and 
that's a shame because it's a state that traditionally had a good population or a decent population, a huntable population. And, and yet we, uh, foresters and other people, uh, beat our heads against the wall to try to get this to happen. And unfortunately it just never did. Right. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's a story all too common in the upland bird world, rough grouse. I mean, not strangers to that kind of a storyline. And do you still go back down and do you hunt Indiana every year? Do you go back down a quail hunt and see family and that kind of thing? I have not. I've got lots of family there where I could, but you know what? I've fallen in love with a whole new bird in North Dakota. And so I do (laughs) not. And, and I will say that I had, honestly, some of the best quail hunting uh, that you could find in Indiana Mm. uh, with the Farm Bureau Network and some other connections to agriculture there. Uh, When I would tell people that I I moved seven coveys of quail and and all that in one day in southern Indiana and Gibson County and Pike County and Dubois County, they would be shocked by that, that I could find, you know, that many coveys. And they weren't all huge coveys, and I never took more than, and this is this says something about my shooting, I never took very many birds. But to move seven coveys and have, have at least three people there with me to witness it, uh, you know, uh, it was a great thing. And I did that, you know, uh, just before I moved to North Dakota. That was in the in the late teens, or at least the, the mid-teens, uh, early teens, you know. And mm, yeah. either in 2009, 2010, 2011, I was still moving multiple coveys. And you had to be careful and not push them too much because you wanted to come back the next year. But it's also a thing where uh, these farmers uh, in in southern Indiana, you know, with rolling hills and creek bottoms and that kind of thing, there was natural habitat between uh, the corn and bean fields and the wheat. Mm. And so there was natural habitat if you could get rid of the nest destroyers uh, that were most of the problem. Obviously, hunting didn't have an impact on them, but if you could... If you could get rid of those plunders, the skunks, the coons, the possums, the spray cats were the worst, and then the coyotes, yep. uh, you know, you could have you could have quail habitat and, and quail populations. And so I miss that in some ways, uh, but I like I say, I've found a whole new species with the Hungarian partridge to fall in love with, so I don't have the desire to hunt a covey bird in southern Indiana because I have a covey bird in North Dakota to go after. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, speaking of North Dakota, was your job change there? Was that purely work related or were there some greater designs in place? Uh, I guess you'd say selfishly for me, a little (laughs) bit of both. But in reality, uh, you know, I had worked for the Indiana Farm Bureau for 20 years as a lobbyist and and I did political activity things for them. And uh, the guy who's the CEO up here and I met along the way through the Farm Bureau Network and he made me an offer I couldn't refuse. And okay. uh, my wife and I and the boys had been out here for a conference two years before. And she liked the, the wide open spaces country and didn't mind it too much. I mean, I, I, we, we had challenges of whether we were going to move away from the state where we both grew up. Yeah. But in reality, uh, it was a better place to raise our kids out in the middle of, you know, small town America is wonderful almost everywhere. And so to raise your kids in a town that's like Mayberry, 1,000 people that also still has a grocery store of its own and, and other stores within the little town uh, where it's not just a suburb community where you don't have anything, you still drive, drive into the big city for everything. Uh, not that Bismarck is that big of a city, but at any rate. Uh, so it was a good choice of lifestyle changes for our boys yeah. uh, who were uh, freshmen in high school and a fifth grader at the time. And, uh, you know, good lifestyle change for us, a little more laid back. And we had a wonderful community in downtown Indianapolis where we lived. One of these communities, like in a lot of cities where they, 
they refurbish and reinvigorate a downtown community. Mm, And we had that as a wonderful little place, uh, downtown uh, Fletcher Place, they called it. It's near the Eli Lilly Complex and near the the dome that people see when they drive through downtown Indianapolis. And it was a great little community, but there weren't that many couples that had young kids. We drove our kids quite a ways to go to the, the school that was affiliated with our church because the public schools weren't that great. And, you know, it's a town with millions of people. Uh, I don't know exactly the population, but multiple millions of people living in Indianapolis. And, you know, we could take them to a, a small community where they could walk around town uh, and and enjoy themselves without any fear of, of bad things happening to them on the streets of their own, you know, community. Yeah. And so, you know, for the lifestyle change and then the professional thing, uh, it, it was... Uh, you know, an upgrade for me, uh, more rewarding uh, as a, you know, feeling better about your job and all that kind of stuff. Because from in Indianapolis, I was one of several lobbyists and in, in Bismarck, North Dakota, I'm the head of public policy. And so that allows me a little bit more uh, professional uh, satisfaction, I guess you'd say. Yeah, got it. And then along comes a, a whole new world of bird hunting. Had you Had you hunted in North Dakota prior to that? I was mostly an Indiana and Wisconsin hunter, okay. uh, other than those other states that I talked about for going, going for rough grouse. Yep. Uh, the Farm Bureau Network opened up some doors for me with other states, and so I went to Iowa to hunt uh, pheasants and quail in Iowa. And we went to uh, Nebraska, and we hunted pheasants, quail, and some huns in Nebraska. Okay. And so I had been exposed to some other birds. And northern Indiana has some some pheasants to hunt, and that's great. You know, uh, the prairie parts of Indiana, when you look from Toledo and go toward, say, Peoria, Illinois, that's a lot of old old prairie ground. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, typically flat and, and dark soils and all that, and it lends itself toward pheasants. And so you can find pheasant hunting up there. Uh, it's not, you know, what we're used to in some other states uh, west of the Mississippi, but there's some pheasant hunting that's decent. And so uh, I had hunted, you know, the ditch chickens a lot, and I'd, uh, I'd been around a lot of quail, and, but not so much the huns and certainly not sharp tails, yep. uh, certainly not the sage grouse that we have in Montana and other places out west here. And so it has opened up an, an, an entirely new door for me and given me new things to learn about. I'll tell you what, it's, it's a challenge to think, well, they're going to be in that habitat. And then you realize, no, that's, that's not, that's the habitat that I used to go to. Mm. That's not the habitat that they're in here. And so learning that kind of thing is kind of great to do. It, it kind of reinvigorates your hunting because it gives you, you know, new things to look for. Yeah, absolutely. The whole new game. Yeah. We might circle back to the, to the prairie birds a little bit, but I do want to get your take on fresh off of a gun fitting with Del Whitman, who loyal listeners will be familiar with on this show. You had the chance to come out to Pinehurst Grouse Camp and do a little gun fitting with Del. What were your, okay, first of all, what were your thoughts about gun fitting leading up to it? And what were you hoping to get out of it? Well, I've, I've had the idea of a gun fitting and needing to have a gun fitting for years. And I don't know where that came from, but something I read years ago, Mm. uh, you know, and knowing that my dimensions aren't terribly uncommon. I'm, I used to be about 6'2". I'm probably shrinking a little in my old age at, at almost 60. But I have long arms and I have a big nose and, and I don't necessarily have a thick neck. But, you know, my dimensions are obviously not the dimensions for the guns that I desire to hunt with. Uh, you know, when you're hunting with a, a Flues model Ithaca, 
that was made in 1921, they didn't build guns for a guy my size back then. Yeah. And so I knew that my gun didn't fit me well. And over the years, I've done some adjustments to them and everything. But I had this desire to have a gun for him to know what my real dimensions could be. And a friend of mine, Terry Hobson, who's one of my hunting buddies and, and has great guns and great dogs as well, uh, he, uh, he got a fitting last year, and it just, you know, pushed that toward the top of my list as well. And, and I thought, you know, I need to do that as well. And so I, I had a, the desire to have it done for a long time. And then uh, with Dell, it completely fulfilled my expectations in all the good ways. Uh, and, and I enjoyed it immensely. I mean, just to, to sit around and talk about some of the things, but learning some principles that maybe either I never learned because I just learned by teaching myself to pick up a gun and point it and shoot it. Yep. Uh, some principles and some things that I can transfer to the skeet range because I'm, I'm not a gifted skeet shooter and shame on me that I don't work at it any harder, but you know, uh, some of those things that I thought about and, you know, you can, you can have all your buddies say, yeah, you didn't keep your head down when you pulled the trigger on that one, did you? When, when they make the joke with you, it's one thing, but when you have a Dell telling you, mm. focus on this a little more and, and practice mounting while I'm watching you and mount the gun 10 times so that you get into the rhythm of doing that. And now I can go home and, and sit in my quote unquote library. And as if I have a big library in my house, but <laughs> sit in my library room and mount my gun multiple times as just rehearsal yep. uh, to, to get that muscle memory of, you know, mounting it in a way that it makes, it makes keeping my head down second nature instead of having to consciously think about it, which I had done previously. And so for all those reasons, it was really, really a great experience. And uh, to have him just uh, tweak that, that trigun, yep. you know, in a micro kind of way and see how the pattern moves constantly, yep. you know, and, and, you know, when, when you guys did the, the uh, story, I don't know, was that months ago already, where he was talking about patterning guns? And yes. I, I have pretty faithfully patterned my guns, so I knew where they were shooting versus where I was shooting them. And I patterned my guns in a lot of ways to, to see how they're doing with different shot sizes when I do shot sizes for different, different kinds of birds. Yep. So, I, you know, I had those things in mind, but to see him tweak that gun just a little bit and see that pattern come around to where it needs to go. And then, you know, mounting with my eyes closed and opening my eyes and see where I'm actually looking and doing that multiple times. And then mounting with my eyes open several times to see that I, when I bring it up consistently the right way, it's idiot proof. And when I don't bring it up consistently the right way, I'm, I'm condemned to missing. And so that whole process was very handy for me. Yeah. Whether it makes me a better shooter, I think it almost has to. And shame on me if it doesn't, because it's all my fault at this point. Kind of like your golf game, you know. You yeah. can, you can, you can, you can buy the best clubs on earth, but if you don't practice with them or if you don't do, use them the right way, the great technology doesn't help you. You might as well go back to the clubs from the '60s because you're not going to get that much more out of it. Yeah. So at any rate, it's it's a, there's a similar parallel for me, and. Uh, so I, I enjoyed it thoroughly, and Dell was so graciously patient, which is something that I'm not the most patient person on earth, at least I think my kids would probably tell me. <laughs> and so he was, and that's a skill in itself. Yeah. And so uh, it, it fulfilled all my expectations in a in a great way. Wow. That's obviously uh, very good to hear for me personally as as we keep doing these things as up and gun company. But I've had the pleasure now of really – 
like I've seen Dell do a bunch of these and I'm around helping him out, giving him a hand with, with this or that. So I've, I've got to hear him explain these concepts kind of over and over again. It's really hammered a lot of them home to me, but um, you are correct in that his, his level of patience and the way he can continue to break things down for people going through it. I mean, it's a gift really what, what he has, mm -hmm. but the thing mm -hmm. that I appreciate most, and I imagine every teacher is a little bit different and, you know, I've, I've been to a couple, but I mean, folks will know I, I'm kind of a nerd when it comes to like trying to break stuff down and understand concepts. So, and Dell just is just like, he's like the perfect guy for that. I mean, he will, he will go as deep as you want to go and he has the knowledge and the experience to back it all up. Mm -hmm. But I, but I really do think that when it comes to this stuff, because there are a lot of sort of unknowns or mysteries, if you go out and you're shooting a shotgun by yourself and you, a lot of us do just sort of learn haphazardly or just just on our own so his ability to explain concepts and tell you why he's doing certain things and and really connect all those dots i mean i think just my increased level of comprehension of how of how fit and and ballistics and everything that goes into what we were talking about on that episode you referred to all of that like you said it it has made me a better shooter and at the end of the day even when I miss, I feel like I've got a better understanding of those misses too, and I appreciate that. Well, it, it, you know, I'll make the joke and say, for me at least, it gives me one more excuse. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, it's not always the sun in my eyes or the limb that hit me in the eye. It's, uh, it was it's your sometimes that I lifted my head, you know. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, it, he's he's very good at it, and I know that I may not be the sharpest knife in the pantry. So I know he had to tell me certain conceptual things two different ways for me to, to <laughs> stick with it, and that's good that he recognizes that. You know, I told this guy this, and he didn't quite get it, so I told him this in a different way, and the second time he got it. And what a blessing he is in that way, you yeah. know. And so it was it was handy and, and wonderful, and I can't wait to get back to my skeet league and see if I can put some of these concepts into motion. And if I jump five targets next week, I will text you and let you know that this is this is the practical application of what Dell has done for me, and I'll, I'll certainly thank him as well. Yeah. But I, I'm really looking forward to it. And and if it doesn't improve my score at least a little bit, then I can say, hey, stupid, you didn't listen to what Dell told you. And I can go back to the drawing board and fo focus on that a little bit more, uh, going going back to concepts and principles that I need to improve in my own style. Yeah. Did you have Dell measure any of any of your old vintage guns that you brought along? I, I just brought one, okay. and I and I brought it to him for a different question, oh. and so I really did not. But as soon as I got home, let me tell you. I was uh, I was measuring all of them, uh, and and just the basic things, you know, the drop and the what and the can, length of yeah. pull, yep. and and what I you know I can't obviously change uh, cast uh, on the guns that I have uh, myself at least, uh, and I didn't get out the rasp to do that, so I won't. But uh, you know, I I did measure certain things, and as I recall, uh, his his basic premise was one of the things was. You know, the least critical is probably length of pull. So I worry about mm -hmm. that, but I'm not going to worry about that as much because that that drop uh, and where my cheek and nose and where, where that uh, gun comes to my cheekbone yep. and where my nose is uh, for the the comb is much more important. And, and even if my guns don't have enough cast, uh, I can still... Uh, artificially raise the cheek a little bit to help some of that drop that is inherent in old mm -hmm. guns. And so yes. he didn't measure uh, the gun that I brought along that I had another question about, but I, 
I certainly measured three of of the five that I typically hunt with. I'm guessing you found a lot more drop than he had fit, had you fit for. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I was surprised to find that one didn't have as much drop as my perception would have mm. been. Uh, and and that was good. Which one was that? Uh, you know. Uh, it was one of the Ithacas, although okay. the Parker was better than I thought it was. Interesting. Uh, uh, but one of the Ithacas was closer than I thought it was. One of the Ithacas was worse than what I thought it was. And the and the Parker was not uh, not nearly as bad as I thought. I did not grab the Lefevre, but that one is next on the list. I had to go to a different different cabinet to get the Lefevre, and I didn't yet. But I will measure them all and write them all down and, and see. And I, I obviously don't have the the expertise with the equipment that Dell has, but I can at least get a ballpark. If it's a a half inch, if it's a half inch wrong, I ought to be able to see it. And if it's an eighth of an inch wrong, I might be able to see it. So, uh, some of those things, uh, I, I will learn some lessons from some of that. Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and friend of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit UplandGunCompany.com. Yep, and again, going back to just increasing your understanding, comprehension level of all those things and how they work together, it's a good point about length of pull. Length of pull is one of those measurements. Most people are familiar with it because it. I think it's kind of the easiest one to measure. You know, you have hook a tape measure on the trigger and pull it back to the butt, and boom, you got your length of pull, and it's something to talk about. But as you mm-hmm. said, it is it's really, I mean, it changes every time you put a different shirt on or a jacket on. And, mm-hmm. and, and again, people mm-hmm. know that as well, but the, the thing to understand, or at least sort of increase my understanding is understand how that length of pull might then affect where your face hits the comb and how that affects where you're, where you're getting on a drop because the comb is angled. So anytime your face hits that comb further ahead or farther back, you're changing your drop measurement and that's uh, again mm-hmm. all of this stuff is changing your the relationship of your dominant eye to where it it should be on the stock but understanding how the numbers work together can really paint a picture that you can then take and look at a gun let's say you were you were interested in a gun well you you can then know okay yeah it's it's a little bit short for me but the stock is lower so if my face is further ahead i might the drop might be in the ballpark as, as you said. So that, mm-hmm. that's the kind of stuff that, that I take away from all of this and, and continue to do so as I see other people go through these fittings and stuff. I, I appreciate now the, the different dimensions that the classic uh, gun producers in America had for their combs themselves. Some combs are a little narrower, some combs mm. are a little wider. Yep. Uh, and so that's a dimension that I had never considered uh, and I, I think it has some value to think about, you know, uh, I also think, you know, that a lot of us would benefit if we love these old guns, a lot of us would benefit from, 
from having not a, a totally new stock made, but having a stock bent. Yeah. And uh, that's not as hard a thing and not as expensive as having a new stock made. And some of us might benefit from that if we want to continue to shoot our old guns. And, you know, modern guns, you know, have a, a basic script of dimensions that are fitting modern people, but that doesn't mean that they all fit all people because none of us are the same. And so yep. my brother and my son might have the same dimensions as me, but my other son that's stockier, he certainly doesn't. And our, our oldest brother, who's uh, short and skinny, uh, certainly wouldn't fit uh, my brother's guns or mine. So it, it is kind of an interesting thing that, you know, we sometimes can't get ahead of ourselves if we, but if we know what we need to correct, at least to optimize our opportunities, uh, yep. we should take advantage of it. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Understanding any anything that could potentially help us understand a miss. I mean, I certainly, I know I value that. But as a shameless plug for Dell, I will say I just got a, a gun back from him last week that he bent the stock for me. And he bent it up, which re- reducing drop, bending the stock up, that's always, it's it's one that, I think most stock vendors or, or gunsmiths will tell you that you never quite know how much drop you can take out of it. It's harder to take drop out of a stock than it is to add a little bit more cast or reduce a little cast from my understanding. But mm-hmm. anyways, mm-hmm. I, when I bought it, I knew that the from talking to Dell and kind of bouncing ideas off him, I knew that the angle and the benchmark measurements where they were, I knew that it had potential to be bent. And long story short, he uh, he took it over the summer and just brought it back to me last week and got a good bend out of it. And I am all indications are that I'm I'm going to be shooting that gun even better this year. So yeah, that is a that is an option for vintage gun buyers, and it's it's uh, something to keep in the back of your mind for sure. I mean, if you if you love an old gun that your grandpa hunted with, and you want to get it back out in the woods, and you want to shoot it well, rather than you know cursing grandpa because you don't shoot it as well. Yes. You know, it's a good <laughs> option for people. I mean, there there are things you can do cosmetically to build it up. I mean, I all my pictures with with uh, bird dogs and guns and things, you'll see that I I use like horse leg wrap around my stocks. Mm. Uh, and, and the horse leg wrap is to keep me from scratching beautiful wood, you know, and it's easy to buy it. Any tractor supply, running store, whatever you got for a farm supply store, yeah. you can buy a horse, horse leg wrap that doesn't put a stickiness on your stock. And so mm. almost all of mine have that kind of thing wrapped on them, just, you know, one layer of it uh, to keep me from scratching up uh, nice old wood. I scratched a stock years ago and the guilt got to me. And so I started doing that. Well, <laughs> when you're, when you're putting that on, uh, you know, it, it also can be a safety thing because those are often in bright colors and nothing nothing hurts to have more safe colors around sure. in the woods that, that aren't camouflaged. Well, anyhow, you can also, you know, I, I have often, uh, to raise a comb just a smidge, I have often cut up a can koozie and put it on the top of my comb and form-fitted it and wrapped it with that a uh, little neoprene, yeah. horse leg okay. wrap. Yep. And, and, and you can build up your stock and make it work. I'm not saying that should work for everybody, but it has worked for me, and I know that I shoot one of my guns much better when I have the comb built up like that. And since I'm putting the, uh, putting the horse leg wrap on it anyhow, uh, it, it, it maybe is something that people want to consider. I don't know. And, and, you know, everybody has to make their own choices on that, but that's something I've done in the past to compensate for uh, one of my Ithacas has a lot of drop, yeah. an awful lot of drop. And that helps it a lot. And I can, I can see the sight picture the way I want to see it and the way Dell confirmed mm-hmm. with me uh, yeah. when I have it built up a little bit. And it's a, it's a legacy gun that came through, uh, not family members, but people I hunted with. And I want to continue to hunt with it because of that legacy thing. And it's a great grouse gun because it's light and it has open chokes. And so uh, 
I just build it up a little bit with a can koozie and some and some wrap, you know. So yeah. Yep. No, that's a good suggestion. And I know when I, back when I was shooting a uh, Fox Sterlingworth that I still have, the only way I could shoot it was with a, some kind of a big, I'd tried a bunch of different things, but, um, the idea that you're suggesting probably would have been easier and maybe not as ugly as some of the things that I tried, but I definitely shot it better, better with a higher comb. Well, and it's, you know, it's a cheap fix. Anybody can right. do it. It does protect your stock from getting scratched up and everything. And so for all those reasons, it's made sense to me. I mean, they used to sell leather, uh, comb builders, you know, years ago, and you can probably still buy them and yeah. everything, but, you know, just to try it out, you know, a can doesn't cost you anything. And a little bit of horse leg wrap doesn't cost too much either. And, you know, I've wrapped my stocks in orange and bright yellows and purples and other kinds of things. And it, it is kind of a funny safety thing, but, uh, you know, if you're really compulsive, you can wrap the 16th with purple since that's the whole color and you can wrap the 20 with yellow since that's the whole color. And you can, <laughs> you can do all those things to match your, your, uh, your horse leg wrap to the gauge you choose. Yeah, yeah, red for 28 and 12. You know what? I've got some Birdshot podcast can coolers that if I, that go out to Patreon subscribers. If anybody ever used that to raise the comb of their gun, I think I would be honored. <laughs> <laughs> what a wonderful thing, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, it, actually, just for fun, I pulled up your stock dimension sheet here while we were talking about this, and um, we, won't, we won't go into it or anything, but looking at your numbers – First observation is that if you ever had a gun made to these dimensions, I know I could shoot it well. A little more cast than I would shoot, but for the most part, the drops uh, are are right on in the length of pull, 15 inches. That's what I would shoot. But the point I wanted to make was your drop measurements are, they're not really, really outside the norm. A lot of times there isn't a whole lot of variation from the standard, but it is, it's a slightly higher comb that he had you shooting than you would find on a on a standard gun off the rack, which is typically going to be an inch and a half drop at comb. You're slightly above that through the nose and the face. And then you kind of get down to that two and a quarter number at heel. So yeah, that's, that would be the takeaway for me looking at your dimensions and you now know that going forward. So, and I I wonder if that's because I have a skinnier face than somebody else or not. I mean, one of my sons has a, has a beefier face and football player type kid. And and he definitely would shoot differently than I would, yep. and I wonder if that it, it can make that much difference if you have a a beefier neck or a beefier face and all that kind of stuff versus someone who's stick skinny. And I used to be. I I hope to get back to that someday, but uh, definitely uh, the skinniness of one's uh, facial structure, you know, uh, certainly would make a difference. Yeah. yeah, that can that can change, and that's that's one of the things that a lot of folks will ask Dell. Hey, if I get gun fit today and I want to build a gun five years from now, do I need to get re-gun fit? And usually the answer is no, unless you, mm-hmm. then he'll have a list of sort of things. Like one of them being, if you gained 50 pounds or something, uh, and you gain mm-hmm. a bunch of weight in your face, that could, that could alter the cast or drop measurements. Uh, or if you have some kind of an injury or a physical limitation that you didn't have previously, but for the most part, as long as your body's not changing drastically, you wouldn't you wouldn't need to, but yeah, it's all those little things and it's, and it's very unique to each individual. It isn't uh, as simple as, you know, measuring the old wives tale measure from your elbow to the tip of your index finger. And that's your length of pole. You know, it's, it's not, that, <laughs> yeah, yeah. that has very little value. That's a different, that's a different measurement on Popeye versus olive oil. So anybody <laughs> yeah. ought to figure out that that's not going to work, you know, but yeah. Uh, yeah, that's the thing. And, and for me, I've lost 80 pounds in the last year. 
And so I know my face dimensions have changed. Yeah. I know my neck is not as big as it used to be. And this is a motivation for me to stay on my diet so I can walk longer and hunt harder. Yeah, well, that's good. I'm, ha- I'm happy to hear that, Pete. Um, I do want to ask you, well, okay, since we're on this topic, kind of talking guns and gun fit, I will ask you, because now I just spent like three days with Del Whitman. I spent, uh, I spent 30 minutes at least talking to you, and I feel like I am... I'm up here on solid ground shooting factory ammunition, but my face is peering down into the rabbit hole that is reloading. And I feel mm. like guys like you and Dell are down at the bottom of the rabbit hole looking up saying, come on down, everything's fine, you'll, you'll be okay. What do you think, Pete? Should I, should I take the leap? I'm, I'm okay with talking about it and what works for me, not saying that it works for everybody. Yes, gotcha. But yes, why not? <laughs> what, uh, what led you into that? Well, you know, uh, with shooting vintage doubles i wanted to shoot lower pressure loads yep. uh, i obviously had the desire you know it's always easy to save a little money here the more money you save uh with certain things the more money you can spend going on trips to hunt other places yeah uh and and you can't find i love 16 gauges you cannot find really high quality 16 gauge loads in a lot of places right off the rack so i always had to pack 16 gauge uh, loads to go with me in places you can find the standard but sometimes the standard, you know, we're, I, this, is, this may sound bad to say, we're Americans. We want to do everything in a big way. We yep. like 30 out sixes instead of 243s. Uh, we like three inch magnums instead of two and three quarter, two and a half. Uh, and, you know, if you're hunting with a pointing dog and, and all, you, you probably, you should be shooting at a bird, you know, 17 to 25 paces away, probably when it comes up, when you flush a bird. And you don't need, you know, an ounce and a half to knock that bird down coming out of a three-inch shell. Yep. So, you know, I, I wanted to customize loads to fit the old guns that I had, to not kick as hard as they did. I'm not worried about, as you and Dell talked about, I'm not worried about that, that millisecond, that, that 30-second of a second of when the first pellet hits versus the last pellet mm. uh, when I'm shooting at that bird. And so I wanted to customize loads to fit all those things. And... Anybody can do it with a simple uh, single-stage reloader. There are plenty of them out there, uh, and and obviously there's a, a name brand from a, a place in in Wisconsin that is probably the premier one, and they work pretty well for would anybody to customize Mac? their loads. It would, and I didn't know if they were sponsors, so I hate to mention, but you know Mayville <laughs> Engineering is a great place, and so uh, at any rate, you know I I started off loading 16s first. And then I bought the conversion kit so I could load 28s. Uh, and then uh, I have a 16, a 28, and a 20 set up in my garage right now. And I can I can make one of them 12 if I need to. Interesting. And I have a, a, a couple of other uh, couple of others set up in my or in my garage that I don't use all the time. But those three stay screwed to my workbench all the time uh, because I want to be able to shoot for grouse and woodcock. I want to be able to shoot eight and a half shot. You don't always find that. Uh, certainly yeah. you don't find that in a 16 yeah, that's, that's and you very may not be able to find it in a 20. Yeah. Uh, but you, you can occasionally find it in target loads for 28 gauge, yep. sometimes for 20, I suppose, but you wouldn't find that in a 16 gauge anywhere. And so, uh, I wanted to be able to reload those. Uh, when I think about pellet count for a 25 yard shot, I want to maximize filling that circle with that, that pizza pan is flying away from me. I want to maximize filling that with with small enough shot that I break wings and not just drop a leg and the bird flies away and then cripples off somewhere. Yep. And so, uh, you know, I wanted to be able to, to shoot more pellets 
as long as I'm doing that in an ethic way with not shooting really, really fine pellets, uh, I want to be able to shoot more pellets. And when you look at the difference in pellet counts for a seven and a half uh, shot one ounce load versus uh, eight and a half shot uh, one ounce load, it's a substantial difference. Why wouldn't you set yourself up for success by shooting a little smaller uh, pellet size to to make a more dense pattern? Yep. If you center the bird, you're going to kill it probably with anything. But if if you're just marginal on your shot for a little bit, you know, helping yourself a little bit is is great. And I, I think guys that hunt with a 28 notice that the birds that they the birds that they're supposed to hit they'd probably kill them with the 28 or the 20 just as easily yep. and and even though there's a difference in the shot uh weight uh seven eighths versus three quarters but i you know with an eight and a half uh of three quarters coming out of my 28 gauge i'm getting more pellets than my friend that's shooting the 20 gauge uh and and that's probably helping me a lot and when i move up to the 16 gauge if i'm using it on pheasants I go down a little bit in shot size. I don't use eight and a half for pheasants, but I can I can stone pheasants out of the 16 gauge with number seven nickel plated shot or copper, but nickel plated I prefer. Yep. Uh, it penetrates better, and and that you you throw a number seven BB on the countertop and look at a number six next to it, which is a fairly standard idea for a lot of pheasant loads. Uh, it it's hard to think that you can't uh, do a better job with having more hits from those nickel-plated number sevens than, you know, maybe 10 or 20 or 50 less hits from that number six yep. uh, out of a, out of the same one-ounce load. And, and a 16 is, is made beautifully for a one-ounce load, so I'm not going a lot heavier than that. Uh, and even late-season pheasants, I don't feel the need to go down to a four-shot. Uh, some of my friends out here have the illusion of, of four shot and, you know, God bless the manufacturers that are making these hot, <laughs> hot loads with heavy shot or right. heavy payloads. But if you're shooting behind a pointing dog, that's doing his job or her job, uh, shame on you. If you're not shooting birds at a, at a decent range. And that was the reason why our ancestors wanted to hunt with dogs. Anyhow, you didn't just want to have to take the pot luck sure. of the, the bird that flushes wild. And so if you're using the dog for its intended purpose and the beauty of a point and walking in on it and walking out in front of the dog and flushing that bird, you certainly should be able to get the gun up and get, get the shot made uh, while the bird is still within skeet range. And so that means, you know, a 25-yard shot. And, and at that kind of range, the knockdown power of 8.5, 3-quarter uh, ounce out of a 28 or uh, an ounce of uh, – Number seven nickel plated coming out of my 16. Those are pretty deadly loads. And I, you know, other people have other formulas that work well for them, but that's what works well for me. And yep. I know I can stone a lot of birds that, that other people either miss or cripple. Yeah, no, that's, that's great info. And I, I will say the, and this is something that Dell and I talked about on that episode was that looking at those pellet count charts, which are very easy to find is Google lead pellet count or, the one I, the one that I always find, and may I'll throw out a link to it in the show notes. Now that I'm talking about it, it's it's shotshell.drundle.com forward slash pellet mm-hmm. pellet count. That's one that always comes up. They must have really good Google SEO because I've looked it up about a hundred times. And uh, yeah, it's I mean you look at a, a three quarter ounce load of eight and a half, and this varies a little bit. They kind of quote this is three percent antimony, which changes the weight of the shot, and so. These aren't mm-hmm. uh, set in stone, but for the sake of this, a three-quarter ounce load of eight and a half has 373 pellets 
versus a we'll keep it the same gauge so if you're shooting a three quarter ounce load of seven and a half you got bigger pellets but you only got 262 you got a hundred less pellets in that mm-hmm. in that shell and again like you talked about a lot of what we are like these discussions come out like we are talking about the margins you know because if you center a bird with heck with nine shot you know within within reasonable ranges the thing's coming down so a lot of times we are talking about those fringe hits or those margins and then that's where you start talking about pellet count and pattern density and all that stuff you know what what turned me on to this years ago was tom hugler had a great series of videos uh and and how they made those videos at that high a quality years ago before we have the equipment that we have now is just amazing to me they should give him more awards for that 20 years later because it's so good and stands the test of time well in one of those he interviewed michael mcintosh oh really asked him what his what his personal uh choice was for shot if he had to pick one kind of shot he said seven and a half because he could use it for everything it wasn't too huge for woodcock and quail and it was sufficient enough to, to bring down pheasants within range. Right. And so I started thinking about that. And as you you said, I started crunching the numbers on pellet sizes. And uh, my chart is, I think, from Hollowell and Company that, that is literally with the staple gun stuck on my uh, above the cabinet of my workbench. I have that <laughs> yep. and, and, and some that are things from my powder companies and, and wads and that kind of stuff from ballistic products. All those kinds of things are, are are stuck on my uh, the cabinets of my workbench, and um, it you know I, I look up at that and I see you know sometimes you you even when you're buying shells from uh, places that you may not in in this day and age trying to find shells right. uh, you know whether you're buying British versus Spanish versus Italian whatever you may not uh, even get the shot size that you think you're getting because of mm. different standards yep. Australian versus European versus here. And, and so you have to be kind of conscious of that. But for the most part, uh, if you look at some of those charts, you can see what the American standard is and what the pellet count is going to be. And granted, there are some odd shot sizes. Not everybody looks for seven shot. Not yep. everybody even finds five shot. I do it for turkey loads, but not for appropriate birds. So you have to kind of you know work at it a little bit. But I'm a little geeky on that. And so it, it works out just fine that I can find uh, the nickel plated shot in the size I want. So I get a little more penetration and, and that test, uh, I see that every time I'm dressing birds that, you know, it will pull the feathers and things through a bird and leave a wound channel, but you don't always find the feathers or the shot within the bird anymore. Uh, since I started using a nickel plated shot. And I, I think that has value. Uh, my wife was kind of compulsive about not finding foreign matter in her food mm. And uh, so that, that kind of encouraged me to do what I could to limit that as much as I could. And I, when I cook something, I, I tend to, you know, candle it very well with a bright light to make sure I don't have anything false in there. Uh, but, but I have noticed that I get better penetration with certain kinds of shot. And, and so I, I just work at that all the time too. Yeah, that is one of those things. If you do enough reading on it, you will quickly come across. It's, it's I feel I've I've read it and heard it said about both copper and nickel plated shot that it sort of slips through the feathers and again i haven't done any experiments on that but i have shot a lot of nickel plated shot and i i feel like you know maybe it's confirmation bias i don't know but i i certainly feel that i have seen the results of said nickel plated shot and i that's something i asked dell about too and he he was 
talking to somebody else about it being, you know, it's a little bit slippery and it, it will slip through the feathers and potentially give you a better penetration. Again, being careful not to, uh, not to make too many bold claims here, but I'm not the first one to say that. And the idea that you could go out and get eight and a half nickel plated shot, good hard shot that's nickel plated in size eight and a half. That's the kind of stuff that's got me thinking like I'm trying to fit a square peg in the round hole, trying to buy this stuff off the shelf when this ammo environment is just tough. I'm now sort of turning the discussion around and just asking myself, why the heck don't I just get reloading supplies? And I think I'm, I think it's uh, it's pretty much inevitable at this point. It's a wonderful hobby to have, uh, you know, in the winter. You can't always just sit around and dream about guns and read books, uh, <laughs> you know, that somebody else wrote about hunting. And so it is a nice hobby to have. And, and so like this summer when I started into my skeet league, I went out to my cabinet where I keep ammo and I realized that I didn't have to reload for quite a little while because I built up several in the winter. Uh, and so I had enough loads to at least get my skeet league started and definitely on the cheap, you know, compared to buying over the counter and you couldn't find them all the time. So it's a hobby that's well worthwhile. And, uh, a little bit of it is like anything else you get out of it, what you put into it. But I think it's pretty easy for a person who has no experience with it, uh, to come out doing pretty well with just a little bit of experience. And it's a good opportunity for you to find a mentor at your gun club or your hunting with your hunting buddies who will be eager to help you through it and, and talk you through it and, and keep you from making too many mistakes. I'm, I'm not a, a rifle reloader or a pistol reloader. My yeah. brother is, he gets so compulsive about it in a good way, uh, about some of the details that it goes past me, but the shotgun stuff is simple enough that I can wrap my head and my brains and hands around it. And so it's pretty easy to do. And they're through a lot of companies. There's, there's good resources out there. Yeah. Uh, and, and ballistics products sells just about everything you could need. Uh, but you know, it's easy to go on eBay and find a used mech junior, uh, pretty inexpensive. You can get into it. Uh, you know, with your first season of hunting loads, uh, you're paying for your reloader already. And yeah. a couple of mine are 30 years old. And so they're, they're well, uh, they're well paid for by now. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I, I feel like I have a, a decent, kind of primer of knowledge again just from talking to folks you and dell and i've got a a local grouse hunting buddy here scott he's he's loaded me up some custom stuff and obviously i could turn to him at any time there's another uh guy that's been listening to the show ron he's he sent me some videos on some reloading stuff that he's done and offered to sort of walk me through this stuff so it's yeah i you know my mind hadn't gone to the whole middle of winter sitting out here in the garage with the pellet stove going maybe loading up some shotgun shells i mean i could see the allure to that and if i didn't if i needed any additional justification i'm now thinking just thinking how much my son he loves tools and all kinds of stuff and i and he's i've I've shown him shotgun shells and so he's into that kind of stuff i mean i can't imagine how excited he would be if i started showing him how to reload shotgun shells that would be a that'd be a fun activity we could do together (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> start him with the standard length loads with pie crimps and then when he graduates to short shells with roll crimps you'll know you've uh, committed him to it right <laughs> yes yes oh man that is awesome that's awesome well yeah there will be more to come on that if i uh if i do uh step foot down that rabbit hole but we shall see so those of us that those of us that like like older guns sometimes you do have to be conscious of the idea that you may buy a gun with a two and a half inch or yes. two and nine sixteenth inch chambers and so that's that's another rabbit hole to, to go down. Yep. Uh, that sometimes you have to worry about those things with buying an old gun and and everything. And I had to learn that the hard way, 
and and you know it's it's something to be considered as well you can customize loads if you don't want to have the uh, chambers lengthened you can you can customize some loads to what you need yeah indeed and that that is another factor at play for me that the gun i mentioned getting back from dell it's a vintage that's a french name gun but european make in uh in 12 gauge and that's got it's got short chambers it's also it's weighs six and a half pounds so you could it could tolerate a good load but i'm just like i just want to I want to shoot light loads out of it just because just it's, you know, it's an 1890s gun. And I'm, if I'm shooting grouse and woodcock with it, or even if I take it out to the prairie, I'll probably be shooting seven eighth or one ounce loads out of it. And the idea that when you're looking for something that specific, it would be nice to be able to just get some practice and figure out how to load that stuff up myself, be a little bit more self-reliant. Sure, sure. Well, and a gun like that, if it was used in the French army, they never shot it. So there you go. <laughs> Got you laughing on that one, huh? Yes, yes, yes. Good one. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. All right. Let's talk prairie birds a little bit here before we close. What's uh, what's things looking like out there, Pete? You know, I am overly optimistic all the time. Yeah, I'm always a glass half full kind of guy, <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that. But I, I have really good expectations for this fall. Uh, you know, in I believe it was in 17, we had a, a decent spring, and then all at once the, the water spigots turned off around Memorial Day, and it didn't rain again until August. Mm. And while we started with, with grasshoppers, then they they died off, and, and so did the birds, and so we had a couple of years of recovery. Uh, we've had, in western North Dakota, we've had a drought going on for several years, and that has finally been broken now uh, to where it is green everywhere out west, and uh, the... Um, the, I mean, I drove from Bowman County in the southwest corner of the state, and I was all the way up by uh, Crosby in the northwest corner of the state, and it was green all the way the first time I've seen that. Uh, and I think a lot of people could say that, that you just don't see it that way across the whole western side of the state. Uh, and, and there are some places where it's been too wet out east, and there are some places where they've got pockets of dry. But for the most part, I would say that the birds are well-nourished this year, because we've had the bug population and all those things, crops look great. Uh, there's plenty of cover for birds. Uh, we haven't had the wildfires, which we had, uh, not that they affected North Dakota as much as they did some western, other western states, but we haven't had any of that this year. And so I expect a really good season. Uh, the challenge, of course, is that uh, I was talking to the, the bird biologist in Montana, and he said, you know, it's going to be harder hunting because Last year, you could go to that one patch of green and know all the birds were there. Mm, and this yeah. year, there's so much green that they're going to be able to be spread out, and that's great. Yeah, you know, uh, but but there will be there will be so much habitat for birds, or so much attractive habitat for birds that uh, you'll have to be on your game and know exactly what they're looking for on that specific day to to really uh, drill down enough to know. Uh, where they're likely to be versus just wandering aimlessly yeah. uh, with, with no clue where they might be. So it's a nice problem to have, but I expect that we'll have a good season here. And uh, I heard from the biologist, uh, the rough grouse biologist in uh, Minnesota the other day, and he said their drumming count was up. So I expect that maybe the Lake States will still stay on the high end of the cycle for an extra year. Right. And so I hope rough grouse are good. I know the prairie birds are going to be good. Every time I drive, I see plenty of prairie birds, even though there's a lot of green and they can hide in a lot of places. But just yesterday evening, I went to run run the dog and and uh, move several pheasants, and that was all good. Uh, and I didn't go to a place that was specific to, to sharp tails or huns. Uh, but I, I anticipate that we're going to have plenty of that. We've started wheat harvest now. 
Uh, it's not going maybe fully strong now, but, but wheat harvest is starting. And so I'll start getting reports from farmers about, uh, you know, what they're, what they're flushing yep. and what they're seeing within the wheat harvest. And I'm hoping to get good reports from, uh, from folks about Huns. And uh, I, I expect a good season. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Uh, sort of extrapolating on that a little bit, in that situation where the situation we might be looking at this year where there's good cover all over the place, are there are there things that you're looking for? Let's say we're talking sharp tails, and you could be specific to Huns if you have something to say on that as well. But is there something you're looking for to that would put a piece of prairie grass, sort of elevate it in your mind and say, yeah, well, there's a lot of good places, but this place has an abundance of rose hips or abundance of buffalo berry. Are there things that you could you could isolate on that would say this is premier cover or is it more of a just keep walking kind of thing? Uh, it's a little it's a little balance of both. Okay. I mean, for me, I'm still in the learning curve of things. Uh, I haven't been here ten years yet, and sure. I don't learn as fast as others. But <laughs> there there is that you know I can I can it, it's it's a funny thing where you can uh, you can look at it and know, but you may not be able to describe it and know. Yes. And so for me, uh, for the for the sharp tails, it's the certain bushes in certain locations with the draw. And, and experience and knowing they were here once, but they haven't been there for a few years because it's been dry, and I expect them to be back there in that area. Gotcha. Uh, you know, between the cover and the, the water supply and the food supply uh, that, that most people would look for, I wouldn't say that there's a, an absolute perfect thing for me, uh, but I, I certainly, uh, you know, look for the standard things that you would in almost any species, even though the, the different kinds of cover change and the different kinds of food change. But the water will be a lot more spread out this year, so I think I'll be looking specifically more at food. And for me on the sharp tails, it's the buffalo berry bushes and things like that. Uh, and and uh, for me on the huns, it's it's a lot about uh, what crop was there this year, and and knowing you know that they're gonna they're gonna be a certain crops are more of a magnet than others. And so I'm going to be looking for those things. I mean, gosh, if I could if I could encourage some of my neighbors to grow canola instead of soybeans i'd be happy with it but mm. you know beans and hay fields can be good too and so uh there it, it's like in any other place where you you look for the the three the three things that draw them between uh security cover and and food sources and and maybe a water supply and a few other things like that but you know for a specific uh, I'm still wandering a lot because I'm still I'm still at the learning curve. I'm yeah. not at the Tyler Webster level yet. So. <laughs> I was going to say it never will be. Yeah, yeah, he's been doing it a long time. Uh, specifically in that in that part of the world, I, I was going to say our mutual friend Tyler. I've heard him talk a lot about hunt cover, and I feel like I mean, again, like you, I'm a, I'm in the process. I'm on the learning curve, but I've definitely made more strides on sharp tails than I have on huns, and so this these. The Huns are kind of the big question mark for me, and I, w I did a walk with with Tyler last year. We got into some Huns, and I actually was kind of was kind of behind the the main gunners, so I didn't get any shooting. But it was just it was a it was a really neat cover that he took us to, and I'm starting to get you know I'm starting to formulate in my mind what what it is that he's talking about when I hear him talking mm -hmm. about it. But describe to me what an ideal hun walk looks like for you. What are you seeing? You know, what kind of crop field are you walking adjacent to? What does it look like to you at sure. this point? If, if I can find the, the wheat stubble field or the canola stubble or, or some kind of crop like that, I mm -hmm. mean, it, it could be some of the cereal grains. 
if I could find that field in a in a rolling situation with uh, some some brushy draws or um, sod waterways that are grown up a little bit, running through it in a in a you know a spider web kind of pattern, uh, and there happens to be uh, a stock pond and a little bit of uh, creek water, you know I'm loving that. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think most people would probably recognize that. And then after that, it gets to be the nuances of things. Yep. Uh, and the nuances could be any variety of things. Uh, certainly bugs in the area, soil type, and that kind of stuff needs to be factored into it. And then, uh, you know, what all their, what other things they're competing with in that, in that little micro area. Yeah. I guess for you and me, the benefit could be, you know, we could, we could, teach Tyler to be a better rough grouse hunter since we grew up in the woods that maybe is too dense for him, but he could teach us a lot about seeing things visually on the prairie where you just automatically know that's the right one versus the one next to it that, that the, the, the next person may not see all those subtleties that I am trying to learn desperately. Indeed. Indeed. Yes. I would like to think that I could, that I could show Tyler a a good rough grouse cover or two, but that's a good point in that uh, he recently did a little webinar with Onyx and uh, Marissa Jensen, yep. and he and Ben Bregan, they did that. And I was watching that, and Tyler, he got into talking about how it was it was sort of that elevating your your perspective on looking at prairie grass. You know, yeah, I, I can find the stuff that's calf height and the right thickness, but then looking for the nuances within that prairie grass, the darker patches, the buffalo berries, the rose hips, all of that just, it really spoke to me because it's really the same thing that we're doing in the grouse woods, but it, it takes time and experience and it takes, you kind of have to have that sixth sense about it, which, which comes with time. Yeah. That, that knee high buck brush, you may not recognize it all the time. Uh, but that knee high buck brush that is interspersed somewhere that would give them a place to run quickly Mm -hmm. and get away from that hawk or whatever, that Eagle or whatever, you know, is such a blessing if you can recognize that even from a distance through binoculars. And I'm not intuitive enough to see it all the time yet. Yeah. Uh, but I, but the light bulb can come on for me occasionally. And so being able to see that kind of stuff and then having the, the beauty of Onyx to be able to market so you can come back and right. check it year after year. I, I fell into uh, a group of sharp tails last year. My wife and I were out on Labor Day weekend, opening weekend in Montana. And, and the dog was birdie and it was obvious that he was working something there, but he relocated and he relocated and he relocated. And finally, uh, we pinched the birds into the buck brush that was just on the edge of the wheat stubble field. And it was such a beautiful thing, you know, and my wife appreciated, you know, seeing the dog actually work it rather than laying around the house uh, all the time. <laughs> and so, you know, just to see that that little bitty pocket of buck brush that gave them exactly what they needed in just that right spot as we pinched them uh, to that area uh, was such a marvelous thing. And it's like, yeah, put that in your memory bank so you can recognize that later. And it's not always foolproof. But it is definitely the the kind of indicators that at least give you a good feeling about it. And it's it's a little bit like the Supreme Court justice years ago that says, I don't know what it is, but I know it when I see it. I don't know how to describe it, but I know it when I see it. That's a pretty good way to put it. Yeah. That is true for a lot of us in that, you know, you can drive past a million acres of of, uh, big tooth aspen saplings that are as big as your wrist. But you may not uh, just see the one that is just the ideal cover to hold that grouse or that woodcock or whatever it is. And so, you know, it is a little bit of an experience thing. And I, I try to mentor my sons on it and other, other people on it. And I, I hope that by the time I'm too old to recognize it from my eyesight, that they'll take me to good places to hunt. 
yeah, that slash pile or deadfall or patch of hazel brush, you'll know it when you see it. That's dead on, Pete. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, hey, we could obviously continue going. I know we're coming up on time for you. Um, we'll, we'll have to get you back on the show. This was a blast. I really appreciate you taking the time to come and chat with me. And maybe uh, maybe after I've got a got a couple boxes of reloading done, we'll bring you back on. <laughs> we can we can talk about what mistakes I'm making at that point. Well, I I love doing it anytime, and and when you come through New Salem, I'm happy to make you some sharp tail marsala with our chicken marsala recipe that makes sharp tail taste great. And so I'm um, I'm happy to host anytime. So uh, we can we can make that happen. I've been thinking about that ever since you mentioned it to me last Thursday, Pete. I can't wait. Are you kicking off the season in Montana this year? I will probably, uh, depending on a few things uh, with with family obligations. I will probably start there on the first and maybe hunt Thursday, Friday, Saturday, first, second, and third out there, uh, and then come home uh, and and do some bird hunting. We start on the tenth here, uh, do some bird hunting here, and then uh, a buddy of mine and I have a, a trip to Central Montana planned for later in the month. A lot of times, season opens and it's so hot that you feel badly for working the dogs very yeah. hard, and so I can do a little casual hunting and not work them, not working really hard on on some things. But then once we get past the middle of the month, uh, temperatures should cool off so that we can at least hunt the mornings and whatever. And so I'll be in uh, I'll be in Montana again later in the season, and then uh, finish off September back back home. Uh, and harvest will be a long way down the road by then, so I'll, I'll be able to hit those pockets of specific birds uh, and then uh, start moving into rough grouse mode pretty shortly after that. Yep. And uh, I, I already have the cabin. We've rented a certain cabin in Wisconsin for uh, a number of years now, and, and uh, we've had a cabin in that same township for 30 years probably. And, and so I'll be over there at the cabin, and I know I'm driving past millions of of birds in in Minnesota to go to that cabin, but it's where it's convenient for me and the guys from Indiana to meet. So I continue to go there and, uh, then I'll come back and some of the best pheasant hunting is between Christmas and new year's after deer season here. Uh, I can enjoy uh, pheasants with a little snow on the ground and, and pick up some, some huns incidentally, and probably some sharp tails, even though they seem to flush when I slam the car door or the truck door. Uh, <laughs> but that's, that's sharp tails for you. And so, I'll have a pretty busy season around and hope to finish up, uh, you know, in the, the first week of January back in, in North Dakota somewhere doing something with birds and shotguns. Hey, that sounds like a plan to me, Pete. Uh, that sounds like a great season ahead. I wish you the best of luck this fall. The little setter that little Miss Rose, she would not pick up this tennis ball in the garage earlier. I was doing a little drill with her. Now she's picked it up, she's prancing it around, and she's showing off in a way that's saying, Dad, it's time for dinner. I've got your attention. Let's cut this thing short. Let's wrap this up. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Pete, thanks so much for joining me on this episode of the Birdshot Podcast. I really appreciate it. Let's keep in touch this fall, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you soon, Pete. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Have a great day. You too. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. That does it for this episode of the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt and Final Rise. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, like, and share, and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast.
Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.